The Grammys are the music industry's awards show. Ironically, the 2012 edition began with a prayer to God, but ended with an ode to Satan. Thanks to the Grammys, 40 million worldwide viewers watched Nicki Minaj stage satanic rituals like levitation, demon possession, sexualized torture, an exorcism, even altar boys danced in sexually suggestive maneuvers. Words like creepy, dark, evil, deplorable were just a few of the adjectives used to describe her act. Yet sadly, it turns out for Nicki Minaj, the sentiment behind her antics wasn't an act. In an MTV interview, Nicki Minaj claimed that she was possessed by an actual demon. Well, as shocking as the Grammys' depiction of Satanism might have been, if that show had aired on 19th century B.C. Amorite TV, I doubt anyone would have batted an eye. For Canaan land was a hotbed for all things demonic. Sexualized shamanism was common in the ancient world. See, God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Canaan. But these faithful men never felt at home there. They were strangers in a very strange land. Recall the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was just the tip of the iceberg. The Canaanites indulged in occult fertility rites, in temple prostitution, even in child sacrifice. The Grammys would have had plenty of programming. Flashback to the days of Noah. Something weird and evil happened on planet Earth. It was so repulsive that God flooded humanity and started over with mankind. Genesis 6 implies that there was a sexual intermingling between humans and demons. Something you might see in a Nicki Minaj video. The Bible refers to the offspring of these perverted unions as giants. The Hebrew word is Nephilim which means fallen ones. Jude 6 tells us that these demons did not keep their proper domain. In other words, they failed to maintain God-ordained boundaries. These demons materialized as humans to impregnate women. Genesis 6 says that God started over with Noah since he was perfect in his generations or literally pure in his lineage. It seems Noah and his family was one of the few that hadn't been infected by this demonic activity. Now flash ahead to the days of Moses. The Hebrew deliverer returns Israel to the edge of the promised land, and the nation sends in spies. And amazingly, the reconnaissance reports giants in the land. It's the return of the Nephilim. It was a post-flood outbreak of Nicki Minaj-type demonism. Still later, this turns up again among the Philistines. David's archenemy is another Nephilim, a giant, named Goliath. I know all this sounds strange. It sounds dark and sinister. These sexual perversions were occurring in mankind's distant past. Boy, with your great, 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 great Grammy. 
But what Nicki Minaj gave America a taste of in 2012 in the Music Awards was nothing unusual in the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, when first given, the promised land was a perverted land. Last week, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. Out of all the world's families, God chose one man to make three promises. Abraham inherited a chunk of land. His descendants became a great nation. And through Abraham's seed, that is a special heir of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. We summed up the covenant, land, nation, blessing, or sod, seed, salvation. That's an easier way to remember it. The land was Canaan, the nation was Israel, and the seed through whom the blessing came would be Jesus. Now these were important promises, and God invested them in one family, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But narrowing down his redemptive plan to a single family made God's strategy more vulnerable. Abraham's offspring will become a great nation, but at the time of their, their choosing, they were just a mid-sized family. Genesis 46 adds up Abraham's kids and grandkids, and it totals 70. The nation was a fair-sized extended family. So here was God's dilemma in the 19th century B.C., A corrupt Canaanite culture is strong and influential. The Grammys on steroids. Whereas Abraham's family is susceptible and impressionable. It's just getting started. Now all Satan has to do to spoil salvation for all mankind is to pollute a single family. So how can God protect this small band from extinction? Think of a lone little lamb surrounded by a pack of wild, ferocious wolves in for the kill. How will God's vulnerable few survive in a land of devouring evil? See, if God had left Abraham's family defenseless in Canaan, they would have been gobbled up by the culture. In a few generations, they would have disappeared through intermarriage and assimilation and spiritual compromise. See, God needed to plant them and protect them where they could grow and gain strength until he could equip them to stand out as a separate culture and people. God's answer was twofold. Egypt and covenant. Egypt and covenant. See, we also live in hostile surroundings. The church exists in a sexualized world of evil spiritual influences. Here in this world, our calling, we're in the world, but not of it. Our job as Christians, in a word, is infiltration. We're to influence, infiltrate the world around us and and provide a Christian influence, point people to Jesus. God has given us an internal power to carry this out. His Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. That's what makes the difference in this world. But Abraham's family didn't have this internal spirit. You see, God needed to protect his developing family from evil influences until they could grow strong enough to survive and maintain their distinctiveness. Thus, his strategy for Israel was isolation, not infiltration. In essence, what God did is he loaded them up 
and move them to Egypt. And Egypt was the perfect place for isolation. Egypt was the one country on earth at the time where God's people could remain completely segregated. Ancient Egyptians were terribly racist. They believed Egyptians descended from the gods. Thus, any marriage to a non-Egyptian was unthinkable. In Egypt, the Hebrews had no opportunity to mingle with the locals. You see, at the end of Genesis, in preparation for the famine that strikes Canaan, God engineers Joseph from a pit into a prison onto the pinnacle of Egyptian power. And under Joseph's influence, Israel's family visits Egypt to wait out this famine. They actually stay 400 years. Due to Joseph, his family's first years in Egypt were prosperous ones. They multiplied like rabbits, in fact. But when a pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph, their plight changed. They were turned into slaves. Yet think of Egypt as a mother's womb. You know, new parents don't realize it, but the safest nine months their baby will ever know is in utero. And Israel's time in Egypt allowed a baby nation to grow. It allowed Israel to gain strength, enough to survive in the land of Canaan. See, don't ever assume that God gets caught by surprise. He doesn't. Even difficult scenarios are part of God's plan. Israel's bondage in Egypt was previously predicted by God. In Genesis 15, verse 13, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, we talked about that last time, he forecasts his family's future. He says, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 600 years before any of this happens, God makes this astounding prophecy. Israel will endure 400 years of slavery before God judges Egypt and blesses the Hebrews. Then he's going to use the children of Israel to punish the evil of the Amorites. It was all God's design. Seventy people went down to the land of the Nile. They returned six million strong. Once a visiting pastor got carried away, preaching on and on and on and on and boring everybody. Finally, the host pastor, he started shouting, Amen, Pharaoh! Well, it got more and more frequent as the guy continued on and on, droning on and on. He would shout, Amen, Pharaoh. Well, when the visiting preacher finally finished, he went and he asked his host. He said, What did you mean by Amen, Pharaoh? Well, the pastor of the church replied, He said, Man, I was trying to get you to let my people go. Well, that's what Moses told the Pharaoh. Let God's people go. And God backed his deliverer up with ten plagues aimed squarely at the idols of the Egyptians. Egypt worshipped the Nile, the frog, the cow, the sun, the firstborn, and on and on. And guess where God targeted his ten attacks? 
He targeted them at ten of Egypt's idols. He proved to Egypt that all their gods were futile against him. I am is the only true God. And the final plague was the most important. On the night before their exodus, death passed over every home in Egypt, killing every firstborn son. But God provided a means of deliverance. He always does. If you slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts and thresholds of the home, when the death plague passed over and saw the blood, it would pass over the family inside. The people in the house were saved, not because of their own merit, but due to the blood. It was a type of all God's covenants. God seals his deals with blood. Salvation had nothing to do with the morality of the people inside. Nothing to do with their moral scorecard, their good works, their religious observances. It was always about their faith in God's sacrifice. Was the blood on the door or not? Well, the next day, Moses led the people out of Egypt. You know, they came to Egypt a family and they departed a nation. Moses then led them through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to the experience of the Red Sea crossing as a baptism. For it marked a new beginning for Israel. The children of Jacob went from slaves to free men, from nobodies to a great nation, from an army of brick masons to an army of the Lord. After exiting Egypt, at God's command, Moses led the nation to Mount Sinai. It took Israel three months to arrive. And along the journey, they learned important lessons. Every day they awoke to the wonder bread, the miracle manna. God also brought water from a rock. And they tasted their first military victory over the Amalekites. Recall when God walked through the animal parts to seal the covenant with Abraham. He appeared as smoke and fire, a smoking furnace and a burning torch. Now God leads Israel through the wilderness by smoke and fire, a cloud by day, and fire by night. God was reminding them that he keeps his covenants. There's a great debate today in biblical archaeology over the location, the exact location of Mount Sinai, the biblical Mount Sinai. There are at least a dozen different proposed sites. The traditional site, though, is a colossal outcropping of rock that rises 7,500 feet above sea level. It looks like a giant pulpit rising from the ground, which was true of Mount Sinai. God used it as a pulpit. It was never God's intention to rush the nation Israel straight into the promised land. They needed preparation. God wanted to teach them His ways. He sought to establish a protective covenant. Recall, God always works through covenants. God wants a relationship with us. We know that. We've learned that. But not just any relationship. He demands a relationship on His terms. It seems everyone today will tell you that they love God. Oh, I have a faith in God. But the true test is whether they're willing to submit to the expectation God sets out in that covenant, in His covenant. A relationship of personal convenience is not a covenantal relationship. How often we hear people talk about having their own relationship with God. 
But God doesn't strike personal deals. He makes covenants. He's made covenants in the past, and now He allows us to join them. But we enter into His covenant, not our own. We enter into the covenants that God allows us to participate in. Israel's destiny was to return to the land that God had promised and to be a holy nation in an unholy world. But to do so, God will arm them with a fresh covenant. Israel camped at the base of God's pulpit, Mount Sinai, for nearly a year. Exodus 19 through Numbers 10 all takes place at the mountain. Over 57 chapters in your Bible record what happened during the making of this strategic covenant. God took His time. He wanted His people to behold His glory and to know His heart. At Mount Sinai, God entered another covenant with Abraham's family. It was preparatory for their journey into the promised land, for the next centuries that they would live in the land of Canaan. God wanted to make a covenant with the people of Abraham, this time through Moses. And Exodus 19 begins the Mosaic Covenant. Now let's read Exodus chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now immediately God points out to his people Israel that he's on their side. God has fought for Israel. And the proof was in the pudding. He had just shook the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. He had embarrassed their idols in head-to-head competition. He had humbled the world's most powerful ruler. He had loosened the Pharaoh's grip from the neck of Israel. His love should have never been doubted. And God uses some beautiful imagery to describe his treatment of this new nation. He tells them, How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The Hebrews had just traveled across mountainous terrain, and they had watched the mother eagles stretch out their huge wings and catch their little eaglets on their feathers. When one fell from the nest, the mama bird would swoop to its rescue just before it smacked the ground. And this is what God had done for Israel time and time again over those previous three months. He had carried the nation. They needed bread. And so he provided it supernaturally every morning. They wanted water. So he supplied it miraculously from a rock. A skilled army attacks a group of untrained slaves. And again, God flaps to their rescue. God was teaching Israel to trust him. God was showing the new nation that they needed to walk by faith. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You know, we talk of Abraham's family as God's people, but actually all the nations, not just Israel, constitute God's people. Israel, though, was given special status. She was a special treasure above all people. This reminds me of Zechariah 2 verse 8. It says there of Israel, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
You know, I don't like to stump my toe or hit my head, but it sometimes happens. Yeah, boy, my eye is different. Seldom do I get poked in the eye. When it comes to eye protection, my reflexes are faster. I have a designated shutter, as a matter of fact, a lid that closes when danger approaches my eye. We're all far more sensitive about our two eyes. And this is how God feels about the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The nation Israel has his eye, his special treasure. God cherished Israel. Of course, Israel didn't deserve such treatment. They were a stubborn lot. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, God speaks to the second generation that enters the land. After God drives out the enemies, he warns Israel, Do not think, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into this land. Don't think it was because of your goodness. As prophesied earlier to Abraham, God defeated the corrupt Amorites because of their sin, not because of Israel's goodness. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, Moses says the same says to the same Israel, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Why God chose Abraham's family over every other family on earth, it really doesn't make sense. There was no logical reason. The only explanation was grace. You know, I can relate. A lot of folks over the years have scratched their head and wondered why God chose me. That too doesn't make sense. Again, the only explanation is grace. All I know is that grace that's earned is no longer grace. God blessed Israel because he chose her by grace. Now he's asking Israel to enter into a covenant with him. God says to this new nation in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a call to enormous privilege and responsibility. God is going to love Israel, treat her like a treasure. But in return, Israel needs to treat God with special dedication. Israel is assuming a unique calling here. Jacob's family will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God chose Israel to be a light to all the other nations on the earth. Remember, rather than working with mankind as a whole, God has now chosen one family. God plans to use that family as a witness to the world. Israel will be God's signpost to the nations. Through Israel, God will teach His truth and shine His light. People will learn of God now by watching Him deal with Israel. The plan was for Abraham's family to serve a priestly role and draw other people into the worship of God. Within Israel, God designated one tribe, the family of Levi, to serve as priests. The Levites administered the sacrifices and conducted the temple worship. And Levi will have a priestly role among the tribes of Israel. But in the same way, Israel will have a priestly role among the tribes of the world. God loved Israel as a special treasure, but that didn't negate His love for all nations. And God's means of reaching the world will be through Israel. Realize, Old Testament evangelism 
depended on Israel and this Mosaic covenant. Yet notice how the deal goes down and the differences it exposes between the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenants. Notice verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now remember, when Abraham cut the covenant, God walked through the animal parts all by himself. All Abraham did was wake up, look on, and believe. But here these people do more. They accept a part in this covenant. The people answer God, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. You see, the Mosaic covenant required not just faith, but obedience to God's law. In Exodus 24, Moses leads the elders of Israel to Mount Sinai to offer a sacrifice and to officially accept the terms of this new covenant. The elders agree to keep God's word. And then Moses sprinkles them with blood. Imagine being rained on with warm cow's blood. As we've noted before, all of God's covenants, all the covenants God makes, are initiated by grace, entered by faith, and sealed by blood. In fact, it would be great when you get home tonight to read Exodus chapter 24. It's a fascinating chapter. God celebrates his covenant with Israel by revealing his blazing glory on top of the mountain. Realize, just as there were three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, the land, the nation, and the blessing, there were also three parts to the Mosaic covenant. There was the law, the sacrificial system, and then the blessings and curses. And with the rest of our time tonight, I want us to explore this covenant that God made with the nation of Israel through Moses. And when we think of the law, the first of these three parts, we usually think of God's top ten, the Ten Commandments. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. One rabbi counted 613 laws. He came up with 248 do's and 365 don'ts which meant there was one prohibition for every day of the year. The law consisted of three types of laws. These 613 laws get categorized under three headings. First were moral laws. These were God's standards for personal character and sexuality. Second were civil or social laws. These laws governed life as it related to living in the new land they were headed, the land of Canaan. And then third were ceremonial laws. Laws that they observed that symbolized spiritual realities. Many of the ceremonial laws pointed to the work of Jesus. There were moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. Now remember, the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant was to segregate Israel from the other nations around them. It set them apart from the wicked Canaanite culture. Three times in the law it reads, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now We read that and we think, what's the big deal? 
But the Jews turned that into a really huge deal. That law became the basis for an intricate set of kosher and dietary rules, separating milk and meat products in various ways. Yet in reality, though, boiling a goat in its mother's milk had to do with a Canaanite fertility ritual that God didn't want his people to participate in. Again, the law set Israel apart from this Nicki Minaj-type culture in Canaan. It defined Israel as God's people by way of their character, their culture, and their ceremonies. It's been pointed out that after being subjected to 400 years of brutish slavery, the bar of decency and morality needed to be raised for the Israelites. That was another purpose for the law. When any people lives year in and year out, generation after generation, fighting for their survival, they tend to cut corners and lose their moral sensitivities. For example, Leviticus 19 verse 14 reads, You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I mean, what kind of society needs to be told they shouldn't trip up blind folk? But the Israelites coming out of Egypt obviously had a very low morality. They needed to be resensitized to their communal obligations. In short, the law taught the nation of Israel how to love God and how to love one another. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 5 deal with our love for God. Whereas commandments 6 through 10 address our love for other people. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, a rabbinical scholar, he asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, he said. And then he said, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus says something really intriguing. He says, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that this is what the law is all about. How to love God and how to love one another. The Mosaic Covenant gave us a picture of what real love looked like. But there was more to the covenant than just laws. It's interesting, in Exodus chapter 20, immediately following God's top ten, the Ten Commandments, the very next set of commands, verses 22 to 26, relate to the construction of a sacrificial altar. See, this means that God knew His people Israel would break His commandments and need His forgiveness just as soon as He gave the commandments to them. As soon as God gave Israel his laws, he prepared for them to be broken with a sacrificial altar. See, the Mosaic Covenant set up a system of acceptable sacrifice whereby men could cover their sin. In the Garden of Eden, immediately after the original sin, God revealed the need for a sacrifice. We've talked about this previously. Adam and Eve clothed themselves in fig leaves, the work of their hands. God replaced their leaves with skins, requiring the death of an animal. That is a sacrifice. Up until the Mosaic Covenant, God expected a sacrifice. But the how, the when, 
the who and the where were never codified. They were never really answered by God. This caused great confusion. The pagans sacrificed to idols. God wanted to keep his worship pure and separate. So he authorizes a sacrificial system. And it includes four elements. He talks about the proper sacrifices and the appropriate priests and the designated place or tabernacle and the specific times or feast days. Leviticus 1 through 9 outlines the different types of sacrifices that one could offer. Leviticus also instructs the people authorized to make those sacrifices, the priests, and talks about the rituals and how the sacrifices are to be performed and how the priests are to dress and so forth. Sections of Exodus are almost like a set of blueprints. They give schematics on how to build the place of sacrifice, the tabernacle. And then Leviticus 23 through 25 is God's calendar for Israel. He instructs his people on the times of the sacrifices or the feasts. Ultimately, everything about the sacrifices looked to Jesus. The New Testament calls Jesus the Lamb of God. All the Mosaic sacrifices were actually fulfilled on Calvary's cross. The New Testament also calls Jesus our priest. Hebrews 4 verse 14 refers to him as our great high priest. The book of Hebrews describes his ministry of intercession for us and tells us how much better it was than the ministry of the Levitical priests. John chapter 1 verse 14 says of Jesus, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You remember when Jesus mentioned the toppling of the temple and the rebuilding it in three days. They scoffed. How could this temple that took 46 years be rebuilt in three days? But Jesus was speaking of his bodily resurrection. As was the tabernacle, Jesus was God's one dwelling place on earth. He was the one-stop shop where you could find God. Jesus was the temple while he was here. And Jesus fulfills all the Jewish priests, the fe- all the Jewish feasts, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 refers to him as our Passover. By faith we apply his blood to the doorposts of our heart and death passes over us. The point is, is the entire sacrificial system illustrated the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And then the third part of the Mosaic Covenant, we have the law, we have the sacrifices, and then the third part was the blessings and the curses. Or as some people refer to them as the choice. See, Israel would always be under this covenant, but how it played out would be up to them. If the nation of Israel obeyed God, obeyed the law, and were faithful to the sacrifices, then He would bless them extravagantly. But if Israel disobeyed the covenant, God would curse them brutally. Either way, through extreme blessing or extreme cursing, the world will look on the plight of the people of Israel and say the God of Israel must be God. God will get His glory one way or the other. One author writes of the Mosaic Covenant, It was like a marriage. God married Israel. God irrevocably linked himself to a nation 
And the nation Israel irrevocably linked themselves to God. Indeed, like a marriage, it was a for better or for worse union. I like to think of it more as a parent-child kind of relationship. I have three boys, and my boys will always be my boys, no matter what. We're family. But at times, they've been at the head of the table. At other times, they've been in the woodshed. It depended on the respect that they showed our covenant. And for the last 3,500 years, this has been the case with the nation Israel. There have been times when they've fallen in line with God's law and God has blessed them abundantly. But there have been other times when they've disobeyed God's law and terrible curses have come upon them. Reminds me of a line from Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye is talking to God and he says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? Israel's role in the Mosaic Covenant placed great pressure on the Jews. It put the spotlight of God's attention on Israel. Even today, global attention is on this tiny nation, Israel. For better or worse, in blessing or in cursing, the nation Israel remains God's witness to the world. If you comb through the two chapters that lay out the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, that's Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, you'll see how precise these predictions have been. The annals of history have now fulfilled these passages in your Old Testament. For example, the reigns of King David and Solomon were a high point for Israel. When Israel followed after God, he blessed the nation with military victories and increased wealth and burgeoning storehouses. Deuteronomy 28 verse 13 sums it up. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 10 is a great case study of Old Testament evangelism at work. After David's reign and then when Solomon's prosperity took over, the queen of Sheba heard about this amazing wisdom and wealth of Solomon and she caravaned to Jerusalem to see for herself. When she arrived, she confessed that the half was not told me. She went on to praise God for his obvious blessing on the reign of Solomon. But Old Testament evangelism also worked in reverse. For Deuteronomy 28 predicts terrible days ahead. Verse 52 foresees cities under siege and populations facing starvation. It forecasts a day when Jewish residents will become so desperate they'll resort to cannibalism in an effort to survive. And this actually happened in Israel's history. In 586 B.C. as the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem. And again in 70 A.D. when the Romans burned down the temple. Jerusalem parents were so desperate they ate their own babies. In 70 A.D. the Jews who weren't crucified by the Romans were taken to Egypt and sold into slavery. It was an ironic twist of history. And it happened exactly as predicted in the last verse of Deuteronomy 28. 
They were sold into slavery in the same land they had escaped from during the days of Moses. I once saw a documentary, very moving documentary. It was on the Holocaust. Pictures were shown of Jews being, <clears throat> being persecuted, being carted off to the death camps, being pushed and herded into the gas chambers. It was a horrible, horrible train of photos. But at the bottom of each of the photographs were verses from Deuteronomy 28. Like verse 67. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it was evening. And at evening you shall say, Oh, that it were morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart. And because of the sight which your eyes see. In fact, verses 64 through 66 of Deuteronomy 28 summarize the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt. You shall fear day and night, and have no assurance of life. And this has been the plight of the wandering Jew for the last 2,000 years. The Jews have been dispersed across the globe, the great diaspora. It was all because they failed to keep up their end of the Mosaic Covenant. Under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, Israel has experienced a lot more cursing than blessing. They disobeyed God and they refused to live by faith. In fact, on the day of the covenant's dedication, the very first day, when Moses leaves camp to behold God's glory, he doesn't even get off the mountain before Israel erects a golden calf, an idol, and begins to dance around it in Nicki Minaj-like lewdness. God sent a plague to shut it all down. In Numbers 14, Israel leaves Mount Sinai and marches to the edge of the promised land where they send men to spy out the land. And when they report back, the Hebrews refuse to enter because of the giants. They refuse to trust God to give them what He had promised them. And true to His covenant, God curses Israel. The generation that exited Egypt dies in the wilderness after 40 years, God repeats the covenant with their kids. Thus the word Deuteronomy. It means second law. It was God's way of preparing a new generation. When the Israelites finally crossed the Jordan River, and after they notch a few victories on their belt, their new leader, Joshua, he ushers them to the heart of the land. They go to the Shechem Valley. For a promised land pep rally. I guess I can't think of a better name to call it. And this was a significant site, Shechem. For Shechem was the initial location in Canaan when God brought Abram and his family into the land. He brought them to Shechem. At the time of the promise, Abram had no child. But now, upon Joshua's return, God's word has been fulfilled. Abraham is now a great nation, several million strong. 
and Israel is back in the land. They've regained a foothold. Their army is now on the march. And they're taking possession of all that God has promised them. In Joshua 8, here's what he does. It's dramatic. North of Shechem's slender valley is Mount Ebal. On the south side of the valley is Mount Gerizim. Both peaks rise approximately 3,000 feet. General Joshua, he splits the tribes of Israel and he sends half to each of the mountaintops. And from Mount Ebal, half of the Israelite tribes, they shout out the, the curses. Whereas from Mount Gerizim, they shout out the blessings. It was an awesome experience. They were shouting the blessings and the curses. And they were declaring their future before it came to pass. The choice of whether it would be filled with blessing or cursing was theirs. As I said earlier, history shows that Israel's future will hold far more cursing than blessing. The nation was unable to keep the law. The sacrifices merely covered sin. They didn't remove man's uncleanness or change his heart. Ultimately, the law proved that men and women can't keep it. We're powerless to love God and to love others. And so again, God comes to the rescue with a covenant. The law showed that Israel and all mankind needed a Savior. They needed someone outside of themselves, someone other than themselves, who could do for them what they could never do for themselves. And so God makes another covenant with a king named David and a future heir from the loins of David who will usher in God's kingdom and bring salvation to his people. Next week, we'll tackle the Davidic covenant. Why don't we pray uh, before we close. Father, thank you for your persistent, prevailing, never-ending love for us and how you pursue us, Lord. That even when we crash, you're there in the turn to do a new work in our lives and a new work in our hearts, to set out new terms for a new covenant. Thank you so much for your persistence, your persistent faithfulness toward your people. And Lord, we recognize even in our own lives how persistent, how relentless you've been, Lord, to get us to the place we are today. And and you have plans for our future, Lord. May we humble our hearts tonight and receive your love for us, your grace toward us, Lord. And Lord, help us to love you in return. Lord, rather than try to fashion our own covenant, Lord, you reveal your will to us, Lord. You speak to us of your ways and we'll follow. You've asked us, Lord, to follow you. Lord, may we we follow you faithfully. Lord, work in our hearts tonight. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thanks again for tuning in tonight. Please uh, chime in at the bottom. Let me know you were here. Let me know you listened. 
Uh, we'll be happy to pray for you. I hope you'll be praying for us. And again, the text number, if you'd like to text me tonight, uh, that number is, I don't have it memorized yet. There it is, 678-960-9321. Hey, Matt, why don't you close us with a, with a song? God bless you guys.